Sarah. Hi, Alison. So news has just broken as we're recording this week's Spotlight on France. Jacques Chirac, former French president, has died. He was 86 years old. He was in power in some way or another, either as mayor of Paris and or president of France or prime minister of France for 43 years. That's an awful long time. And during that time, he'll be remembered on the international stage for his very strong personal opposition to the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. That was in March 2003, and so France refused to take part in that war. Les opérations militaires viennent de commencer en Irak. La France regrette cette action engagée sans l'aval des Nations Unies. Military operations have just begun in Iraq, he said here. France regrets this has happened without the UN's approval, and I hope, he says, these operations will be as rapid as possible with the least loss of human life and that they don't lead to a humanitarian disaster. And you can question now whether or not that did happen many, many years later. We're still in Iraq. Now, Chirac was also the first French president to acknowledge France's role in the Holocaust um, in rounding up some 76,000 Jews and sending them to the Nazi death camps. Here he is in 1995. So he says here the criminal folly of the occupier was helped by the French people and helped by the French state. Now, that's a position that shocked a lot of people. Gaullists, a lot of people didn't consider the Vichy regime to be a legitimate regime of France. But overall, that recognition of France's complicity, uh, breaking a taboo, really, that had been there for a long time, was really well received. Yeah, in, in a way, he launched the sometimes difficult process of reconciling France with its shall we say, troubled history. Yeah. But on the downside, he was nicknamed Super Liar because mm. in 2011, he became the first former president to be convicted of corruption that involved uh, party funding. And it dated back to when he was mayor of Paris. So he was 79 at the time when he got a two-year suspended prison sentence. Suspended. Yeah, suspended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, because he was he was considered to be quite a skillful politician. Mm. Also, when he was mayor of Paris in 1991, he made a controversial speech about immigration. He talked of French people being disturbed by the noise and the smell, les bruits et les odeurs, of people of immigrant background. And that speech was set to music by the band Zebra. Le bruit et l'odeur, eh bien... Chirac was a divisive figure when he was in power. Once in retirement, though, it kind of became a sort of national treasure. Yeah, well, he's always had this debonair persona. He was rather handsome. He was able to mix very easily with people from all walks of life. He really liked people. He really, yeah, he was a people person. I think mm. it's, it's fair to say that he loved going to agricultural shows, drinking beer, slapping people on the back, eating French cheese. He was also quite witty. He could spin a good line, one of my favourites, uh, something he said, I think, in relation to, to Britain, you can't trust people who cook as badly as that. <laughs> that was, of course, a an off-mic <laughs> comment there. Um, so nostalgia for Chirac there, also seen kind of as the last of an era of, of French Gaullist leaders, sort of embodying that conservative right, but with a social edge, maybe hard to find these days on the right. Um, tributes are already flooding in from across the political spectrum. And in the next few days, I'm sure there will be many, many more.
Sarah, we haven't talked about Notre Dame, Our Lady, uh, lately. I wonder how many of our listeners have been there, perhaps on a visit to Paris. Have you been down to the cathedral recently? I, actually, yes. I was there last night. I was actually right across the river from it. I was at an art opening. Um, but it, it's been a while. Um, I have to say, I don't really go down to that part of town much. As before, the streets are all blocked off. And I mean, the cathedral itself isn't really much to look at. It's all wrapped up in scaffolding. Yeah, it's been closed now uh, to visitors since, you know, this raging inferno back in in April since the roof went up in flames they're now securing the premises before beginning major restoration work that will take at least five years I haven't been down myself uh, down that way much either (laughs) but I decided to go this week to see really what's going on because we've talked a lot about the tragedy Mm. of the of the fire of losing this great gothic work of art at least part of it about how much money's been raised or not (laughs) to try and do the renovation work there's been a lot written about what the cathedral might look like once it's been fully reconstructed and more recently there's been a lot of discussion about levels of lead in the air but we haven't talked so much about the human side to this story how the drop in tourism is affecting local businesses let's say you don't exactly have to queue up to get a seat in a cafe around Notre Dame nowadays people aren't showing up well they're still coming but they're coming mainly to take photographs of themselves in front of the scaffolding Mm. Uh, but they're not hanging around they're not necessarily spending money it's such a tragedy but I want to share it with um, people that we know and maybe there's some way that we can help I just saw you taking a selfie of you with your family in front of this big crane actually it's because to be close to the attractions is as close as you can get about 20 meters yeah but anyway it's it's worthy so it doesn't matter that there's a crane in the picture of course it's difficult to appreciate but anyway i mean this is what we can get so far that's interesting this idea of being up close as possible to i don't know the cathedral or i don't know the scene of a disaster maybe being part of history or maybe there's just a spiritual connection but it's interesting regardless of what it looks like you want the picture yeah and the best place to go and get that picture is just on the left-hand side of the cathedral where the cloisters are and actually there's a road that's called Le Cloître du Notre-Dame. It's full of uh, shops, souvenir shops, cafes, Mm. creperies and normally it would be doing an absolutely roaring trade. Right, because they have a direct view under the cathedral. Perfect. That's, you know, you're about sort of 20, 30 metres away, no more. Um, So I went down there. Nobody actually wanted to talk to me. Really? No, I think they're... um, like the cafe owners. The cafe owners, exactly. They're very, they're upset. They basically just said, no, we've, we're sick of journalists. However, I did manage to speak to a man called Michel Mathieu because he's from an association that represents 50 local small shopkeepers and cafe owners. And I met him in one of the worst hit cafes, uh, which used to have a view of the cathedral and now has a view of a high solid wooden fence and a crane. That cafe used to be open every single day of the year. Now it's closed two days a week. In economic terms, it's a catastrophe. We've lost between 45 and 90% of our business. Some of my colleagues have become seriously depressed since the catastrophe. I use that word because it's both a spiritual loss for the cathedral and an economic disaster. Here, they're laying off 15 staff, and in other shops and bars, there'll be layoffs as well. There's been a lot of talk about raising money for rebuilding the cathedral itself, 
What about then for these, you know, these layoffs or these business owners? Anything for them? Well, the Minister of Economy has promised 350,000 euros. The various businesses have to sort of pitch for that money and they'll find out at the end of September whether or not they get it. But even if they do, divided between 50, 350,000 euros is basically 7,000 apiece. That's not very much, is it, compared to how much they've lost? No. Then, of course, Alison, there's this lead thing, right? The roof and the spire of Notre Dame were full of lead and that all melted, ended up in the water, in the air. And I remember at the beginning of the summer, right before the break, the schools in the area actually closed early so to clean it up. And I mean, I have to admit, that's one of the reasons I've been slightly hesitant to go back down to that area. Yeah, it's normal, isn't it? Lead poisoning can be a big deal, especially for children and pregnant women. The authorities say they have cleaned everything up. They've carried out extensive decontamination operations in the area, including at schools. But there's kind of a lot of suspicion there about that they took their time in doing so and kind of wondering, you know, where this all came from. Yeah, indeed. And that's why an environmental group called Robin des Bois, that's Robin Hood, stuck their nose into all of this. And they've recently raised the alarm. They're saying, for example, that police headquarters on the Ile de la Cité, which is where Notre Dame is situated, the lead levels there were eight times above the safety guidelines recommended by health authorities. And on the balcony of a flat in the Saint-Germain-des-Prés area, they'd found lead levels of up to 20 times the safety guidelines. So, but Saint-Germain is not that close, is no, it? No, it's not right next door. Um, so that would suggest that the lead particles have travelled. Um, it was wind on the night of the fire. So all this talk of lead and and concerns of this, is this keeping people away or tourists saying, no, no, I'm not going to go because of that? Well, the truth is they actually don't know much about it. Mm. So um, there are no signs up anywhere. And unless you read the news, you might not even know that there was a question of lead contamination, like for this man. Lead? No, I didn't hear about it. I don't read newspapers every day. So you're not worried about walking around this area? Now that I know that you told me, I'm a little worried, maybe. No, I haven't heard about it. Didn't receive that information, but of course, if I was informed previously, I would have been careful with that. Yeah. Would you still have come here or not? Um, not sure. I think that's a valid concern. And it I, hasn't stopped you coming. Well, we're old folks. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if they, if they shouldn't put a big plastic bag over the whole thing like they would at home. What, back in the States? Right. That'd be a hard thing to do. If it burned and the lead is everywhere, then we're all sharing in it, and that's life. Michel Mathieu told me, however, that both he, you know, his wife, uh, all the local shop owners, all the premises had all been tested, decontaminated, and that they themselves have only got slightly higher than average lead levels in their blood. He reckons that tourists have nothing to fear in coming to the area. There is certainly lead dust on the cathedral. And when the media talk about that and it's not treated in a very scientific way, it can create a sort of psychosis. We don't have many clients as it is. And if it's turned into a sort of Chernobyl and people stop coming to Notre Dame because they think it's dangerous, well, that's not good. The fact is, the lead is on the ground. So unless you start kicking the ground, there's no risk. Walking through the streets won't put you at risk. You might just have traces of lead on your shoes, but you wipe them when you get home. And tourists are not living here, they're just passing through, so they really risk nothing by coming here. 
So no risk, but of course, I mean, he, he would say that, wouldn't yeah, he? Normal, he is running it? his business. Um, in the meantime, though, sort of what would they want then? This reconstruction is going to be taking a long time. It's yeah. not going away. What can they do to stay in business? They're hoping that at least maybe there can be a passageway uh, made from the RER, from the metro, to take people through to the area where their businesses are. They also say, for example, the fence, the barrier, at least instead of being, you know, solid, it could be transparent, maybe hmm. so that you could see a bit of the stone through it. Give you a bit of Workers, yeah, also some kind of see view. something, yeah, yeah, um, and maybe also even just putting on photographs, posters about Notre Dame to just kind of make it look a bit more attractive. So there are several small things that could be done to, shall we say, ease the pain. But the bottom line is they've got to sit this out for the next five years. Well, maybe more. Alas, both the culture minister and the leading architect recently said that this five-year target that Emmanuel Macron is so committed to was probably unrealistic. There've been complications on the site. And they now say the site could be open in five years' time to tourists once more, but chances are there'll still be renovation going on. So we won't be saying goodbye to the scaffolding just yet. Time for a bit of history now, going back 166 years. This week on September 24th, 1853, France colonized New Caledonia. So that's an archipelago in the Pacific, about 1,400 kilometers from Australia and 20,000 kilometers from mainland France. That's a long way, Sarah. It's amazing to think that France ever even ended up there. Yeah, well, so, I mean, there is a sort of, this is the era of colonialism and looking for land. And it was Napoleon III who was looking for a foothold in the Pacific, I guess, to counter the British, who are already there. They're big um, rivals. Indeed, yeah. New Caledonia had 40,000 indigenous people already living there. They're the Canucks. Um, so when the first French settlers came, they were military, and they sort of sent word back that the Canucks were cannibals, and actually the island was pretty hostile, so nobody really wanted to move there. So an ideal place to send your undesirables. Yeah, it became a penal colony in 1864, and by the time it was shut down in the 1920s, some 21,000 prisoners prisoners were deported there from France. Mm. So that ranged from like petty criminals to political prisoners. Most notably, um, there were something like 4,000 prisoners from the failed 1871 Paris Commune, including a very famous resident of the New Caledonia penal colony, Louise Michel. The penal colony basically became a way to build up the island and take over the Canac land. Prisoners built roads and buildings, and a lot of the prisoners got land concessions after Mm. they were released. So I imagine relations then between the, the, the French settlers, the prisoners, and the Canac people were never that great. No, not at all. I mean, the French really pushed the Canuck people off their land, even onto reservations. And so they rebelled. I mean, they waged insurrections as early as 1878. New Caledonia became a French territory in 1946. This as France was facing sort of growing independence movements from all of its colonies. And it meant that New Caledonians, all of them got French citizenship. But New Caledonia has long pushed for independence, notably the the Canucks. So becoming a territory wasn't enough for yeah, them, was it? exactly. Like after it became a territory, it really became obvious this wealth inequality between the Canucks and the French. It was only made worse by the discovery of huge nickel reserves in the early 70s. Canucks make up about 40% of the population. They were left out of this boom, and mm. that really fueled the independence movement itself. There's a really memorable incident in May 1988 when members of the independence movement took hostages in a cave on Uvea Island. It's known as the Uvea Cave Hostage Incident. They demanded talks with the French government about 
about independence, and France refused and sent a hostage recovery team. 20 people were killed then. Most of them were hostage takers. So this happened, didn't it, in May 1988. We are smack in the middle of a presidential election. Yeah, between the two rounds when Jacques Chirac was challenging President François Mitterrand. And Mitterrand won. Yeah, yeah, and it may be strengthened by that. Maybe he was able to give up a bit of ground in those negotiations. He presided a couple months later over an accord that established a kind of truce. France would take over the administration of the territory, and then it promised independence referendum 10 years later. Here's Prime Minister Michel Rocard at the signing of that accord, speaking to New Caledonians. Reprenez espoir. Une page nouvelle va pouvoir s'écrire. So he says here, have hope again. A new page is being written, not through arms, but through dialogue. So, 10 years later, did we get dialogue? Well, no referendum, but another accord. It was the Noumea Accord, named after the capital of New Caledonia, that set the groundwork for a 20-year transition to give more control to local governments, and it led to a referendum 20 years later, held in November of last year. Voters rejected independence, though, by 56%. And France was relieved. To some extent. Uh, President Emmanuel Macron said he would not take sides in the referendum, <laughs> but leading up to it, he did say that France would be less beautiful without New Caledonia. And then he went to lay out his plan for a strategic alliance in the Pacific between France, India, and Australia, this to counter China's growing influence there. New Caledonia would play a big role for France because there's a military base there, nearly 2,000 armed forces stationed. Now, Sarah, New Caledonia isn't France's only overseas territory or département. There are five regions and eight departments, but it is the one with the strongest independence movement, right? Yeah. And last year's referendum is clearly not the end of this story. No, no. And actually, the Noumea Accord of 1998 allowed for up to three referendums. So that was the first one. Um, There might be more. And even without independence, it also allows for the name to change, for example. It says to express the Kanak identity, whatever that would be. But of course, that hasn't happened. There's been no consensus. No surprise. Um, Although Kanak Republic is a popular one being floated about. They've also started flying the Kanak flag along with the French flag. So it's not over yet for New Caledonia or the Kanak Republic. Now, we head south to the Pyrenees Mountains on France's border with Spain for a story about bears. Brown bears have lived in the mountains for thousands of years. They were hunted to near extinction in the 20th century. Humans took over, establishing farms and towns, and of course the tourists showed up. And then, 20 years ago, to stop them from disappearing completely, the French government began relocating bears from Slovenia. It was a plan that also satisfied European Union obligations over providing habitat for wildlife and biodiversity. Yeah, yeah, but the farmers weren't totally happy about this because the sheep farmers wonder about how the growing bear population will impact their herds, This, especially during the summer when they send their sheep up into the high mountains to graze pretty much unsupervised. Pastoralism is a key part of sheep farming in the French Pyrenees, but it runs right into the open mouth of the bear, so to speak. So to speak. Mike Woods went to see this for himself in the town of Sigur in Ariège to find out what bears mean both for the shepherds' livelihoods and for the future of the Pyrenees themselves. Hundreds of sheep come running down the mountain along a wooded trail. Some keep in single file, others in little groups. Waiting at the bottom is Sophie Alzieux. She's one of the 10 farmers who send their herds here in the summer. There are 1,600 sheep in all. 
Summer grazing is a crucial part of agriculture here. The Pyrenees, especially in Ariège and the Haute Pyrenees, have varied terrain. It's good for the sheep because they like rocky areas and they make the most of the grasses. Alsius says the varied landscapes are only beneficial if the sheep are able to graze freely and peacefully. These places become dangerous if a bear comes. One scare is all it takes, and you find sheep piled at the bottom of a cliff. It's clear to us that the way of working in the Pyrenees is not adapted to the presence of bears. Some places are simply impossible to protect. Sooner or later, we'll have to make a choice. If bears keep coming and we can't protect the herds, we'll have to stop bringing herds here, and the mountain won't be taken care of. Bears can hunt and kill individual sheep or scare large groups into running blindly over cliffs in the night. In two decades, the number of brown bears in Ariège and the Central Pyrenees has grown from about half a dozen to nearly 50. Sophie Alzieu's father, Jean-Pierre, is a veterinarian. He's treated sheep after bear attacks, and today he's on hand to help his daughter and the others. He says the region has struggled to keep up with the growing number of predators. 30, 40 years ago, there were few bears in the Pyrenees. They killed one ewe, they ate it, and it was few damage. Since these new types of bears of Slovenian origin has been introduced, it has been quite different. Every time a bear is introduced in a zone, it killed several ewes, 10, 20. In some places, it has been uh, tragic because ewes fell in mass of rocks. Even shepherds try to put the herds far away from the bear, but it is impossible because bear is fastest than the herds. He says this is why the opposition to bringing back bears has become so radical. A lot of shepherds, breeders, and even people in the valley and so on understand that bear can't live with use cattle and horses in the mountains. So they say to French state, take out this beer. The sheep have arrived at the bottom of the mountain, and Jean-Pierre Alzieux joins the group of farmers and shepherds sorting out whose is whose. They guide the animals with long hooked staffs called shepherd's crooks and run them through a gate and into different holding pens. While all are concerned about the impact the bears can have, not everyone here is against having them around. I am a sheeper and I want to work with the bear because uh, it's an honor to live with this animal in my mountain. As a shepherd, Mario Barbosa has spent three and a half months on the mountain with the sheep. For him, sharing the mountain with predators is part of the trade. I know this can be difficult. I can lose some sheep, but every year many sheep die in the mountain, but it's not the beer. We have many accidents. I know maybe my boss don't want, but it doesn't matter for me. I, I am the shipper. If I have to work with this, I have to work with this. That's my job. Barbosa knows the mountain well, because his parents used to manage the herds here at Sigur. 
His mother, Catherine Brunet, is one of few in the community to argue in favor of coexistence with the bears. She's retired now, but she recalls getting along fine for the two years when a bear was known to be in this area. On avait un gros troupeau par rapport à we had too many sheep to use the protective measures properly, so we started by making the herd smaller. We set up a fence and stopped the local practice of letting the sheep roam freely. We figured that it was up to the farm to protect the sheep. It took some time to set up and be really efficient, but once we got how it worked, it was great to know the bear was there and that guard dogs would prevent it from approaching, and there were no problems. Rune's activism has made her a target for the most virulent opponents of the bear repopulation effort. She's had her tires slashed and her car spray-painted with insults. But despite the ranging views on bears and their place in the Pyrenees, nobody here wants to stop bringing the sheep to the mountains. It's not just about their livelihoods. The grazing season also sustains many plant and animal species, as well as the hiking trails and the ski resorts that the region depends upon. After the sheep are sorted, the team loads them into trucks and send them off to farms in the low country for the winter. They'll be back again next year to see if they can make it another season without a fateful encounter with a bear. That was Mike Woods there. Now, you know, there's always this tension, of course, between people and the wilderness, farming and biodiversity and the, the wide expanses as farming practices really have evolved without any major predators in yeah, France. Yeah, we talked about this, didn't we? The, the situation with wolves in the Alps just a while ago. Yeah, yeah, and the population spreading out of the Alps and into central France, putting pastoralism really into question and what goes with it, landscape maintenance, tourism and all that. The French government has recognized the problem with wolves. They've started allowing farmers to shoot a certain number of them each year to keep the population in check. But so far, the bear issue is not on the same scale. So no bear hunting for a while. Not yet. Stop. And that's it for this week's edition of Spotlight on France. If you like the show, please consider subscribing to the podcast. You can go on iTunes, give us a five-star rating. It helps get us out there. And you can send us a message at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We'll be back next week. See you. See you.